In life, the most important thing is trust. Without it, everything is a lot harder in a quickly changing and turbulent time. Barclay Pierce Capital is a safe pair of hands, an organisation built on people. They understand you've worked hard to build your nest egg and their asset management business is tailored to suit your needs. Their services help grow your wealth in order to provide long-term safety and security for you and your family. BPC, just a phone call away. Stand by for a start. Locked away. Gangs are back and they're racing. On today's episode, we get to meet the great Shane McGrath. Everyone calls him McGrario. Shane is an Irishman, moved out to Australia in 1997, and he's got a great story. He's brought many Group 1 winners in his past. He's run studs, he's run syndicates, he's run staying funds, and uh, we're about to learn a lot more about what's involved in all of that and how he made the journey across and, and where he is now. So let's crack into it, Shane. Shane McGrath. Uh, let's let's go back to the start. How you got into the game? You're an Irishman, uh, come out to Australia. How did you get started in the game and then get across here? What was the bug? Uh, was it family riddled? What was it? Um, yeah, I suppose that I got um, started in horses like most people in Ireland at, at an early age. Father was a bloodstock agent. We grew up, we always had sort of horses, ponies around us. Uh, did a lot of hunting when we were younger. And um, we had a great um, lifestyle growing up in Ireland. We did a lot of pony racing, actually, which is, um, I suppose it's an iconic part of um, of the racing uh, scene back back in Ireland. You know, every every weekend in, in the summer, you'd go down racing ponies. And it was it was great sport. And it was a, it was a lovely way to... Um, Introduce yourself into what became a career for me. So how did you start your career? Where was it in Ireland that you started and uh, how did you get out to Australia? So we were born in a place called Bantry, which is down in West Cork, and we moved up to Kilkenny, which is in the Midlands. It's about uh, an hour south of Dublin. And um, yeah, as I said, my father was um, he was in the, in the business, buying and selling horses. So we always had, uh, I guess we had from jumping ponies to hunters to national hunt horses. And yeah, my dad was, um, he was one of the first guys that started uh, exporting horses from Ireland into Macau back in the day when it, when it first opened up. And it was, um, yeah, it was great. I mean, pretty much everyone in Ireland has a, has a good experience and they know a lot about the, the racing. It's, it's, ba- it's basically part of our culture. And um, that's how we started. And then yeah, in 97, I was working for Coolmore and they offered me an opportunity to travel to which was then um, Sejano Stud, which is uh, now her vinery is. And I brought out two stallions. Um, one was called Dahir, which I think everyone remembers, the sire of Belle de Jour, and a horse called Spectrum. Yeah, well, Dahir, he was a champion. Great broomer side too, wasn't he? Oh, he was a smashing horse. And a gentleman to work with as well. And yeah, that's when I first met, obviously, the the Coolmore guys that were based here in Australia, Peter O'Brien and, and Michael Kerwin. And, you know, they've been both great friends of mine through my journey and um, yeah sort of mentors as, as such as well when you say work with those stay-ins what is it about those stay-ins that stand out they say the ones that succeed compared to the ones that probably don't well I suppose even if you look at those two stallions in particular like to here travelled out straight to Australia totally new environment just adapted really well where Spectrum uh, took a little bit of time and, and probably didn't really enjoy uh, Australian life and maybe the Australian broodmares as much as to here and <laughs> you know to here ended up working and maybe Spectrum not so much. So is that why you stayed 25 years mate the Australian broodmares? Right, I was only coming out for as I said six months and I remember I rang um, Harry King in December and I said to Harry listen the horses are coming back but uh, I might stay here I said this is a, this is a great country and 
I suppose it's a bit of a cliche when you talk about the land of opportunity, but it really was. Um, you know, Scone's a lot different to what it was um, in '97. It was a, you know, it was a little country town, but it was it was vibrant. There was there was a lot of opportunity there. So let's talk about so your first few years, uh, say in Australia. What were you looking after? Was it foals? Was it just sustains, or was it just the whole whole spectrum of what Cornwall had to offer? Uh, well, the first month was uh, was pretty different because we arrived out and Sedgina was actually it was at, at all the uh, white um, railings uh, fencing. It looked a bit like a Kentucky farm. <laughs> so we arrived in August and they decided that we were going to be an Australian farm. So yeah. myself and the other stallion guy, we spent six weeks uh, painting the fences from white to black. <laughs> and if anyone's been to Sedgina or Viner, it's a pretty big farm. So the, I learned to paint. That was my first career. Bit like uh, Mortal Kombat, mate, or or that uh, that movie Kung Fu, mate. Uh, so you did that, and then so did you start working with the foals? What what we really want to get into here is, say, identifying say horses from say that really young age as a foal. Uh, what changes say when they get to the weanling, get to, to the to yearling, to obviously become a racehorse. So your experience with say the foals when you first were at Coolmore, even in Ireland, and so forth. What stood out? Yeah, I had a great grounding before I came out, even though I, was, I came out quite young, but I spent two years at um, Yeomanstownstead, which is one of the, the famed nurseries back in Ireland. And, you know, they've made a, a career and a, um, you know, basically a legacy of uh, purchasing foals as uh, pin hooks and selling them as yearlings. So you saw a lot of those really good foals coming through and watching them watching them grow out and develop. And obviously Yeomanstown at the time were standing quite a few stallions and, you know, they've got Dark Angel now, but... Back when I was there, like we were prepping 70 or 80 yearlings every year and you just, you know, you saw the nice horses and you, you got a feel for what um, what those guys, they're such a trained eye, what, the, what they were looking for and I suppose they're the things that uh, that stand with you from a horse point of view but um, primarily, you, I think uh, at a young age, you learned how to work and that was, yep. that was the big thing and I think, um, you know, being able to get up early in the morning, making sure you're getting out to work and just those things that you can you can take through from, from an early age. Um, you got to enjoy work if you're going to be in this industry, and um, it's very much a, a you know, a, a people-related industry. But fundamentally, you've got to have a desire and a passion, and um, you you got to want to work. And if you want to work here in Australia, there's there's plenty of opportunity. So you said, you know, looking at those trained eyes, say from the start back in Ireland, what what did you learn out of that that you were able to implement into what you're sort of doing, say in the last 15 years here? Yeah, I guess um, when you're looking at horses for everyone looks at horses in a different way and they, they say different things and one thing I've noticed is it doesn't really matter wh- what way someone explains what they're looking for everyone's looking for the same thing you're looking for an athlete you're looking for a horse that's going to going to uh, improve as, as it gets older and Demi O'Byrne said something to me years ago that always stuck with me when we were looking at yearlings he said you know can you see that horse in the golden slipper you know, and you're looking at every year and it walks out of the box. Can you see that horse with a number clout walking around at Rose Hill? Or can you see him in a derby? Can you see him in a Coolmore? You know, any of those big races. Now, most of them don't get there. And it's a, you know, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty brutal uh, industry in that respect because there's a lot of negatives and a lot of disappointments. And But you still have to have, um, you have to have a goal and you have to have a vision of what you're trying to do. Um, and that was one of the things that stuck to me. Can, the, can you see this horse winning a good race? Yeah. And so, okay, when you say, can you see this horse? So let's identify some of the great horses you've bought as uh, maybe even as weanlings or as yearlings and what they've done. And so what, what stood out about that horse or those horses? Um, that's a really good question. Take, um, you know, over the last few years, we're very fortunate to work for the Fung family. And, you know, we, we bought some lovely yearlings there. The at, Fung family, that's Aquas? At Aquas, yeah. Yep. And, you know, you look at, say, Farnan, Prague, Anders, they're three that come to mind straight away. 
Um, now they're quite um, dissimilar in terms of physique, but they all had a lot of similar at- attributes. I thought they had a great balance of mind. Yep. Uh, very good movers, big, strong, physical colts, and we were lucky that they got to where we wanted them to get to. But um, y- y- you know, you look at them now in the stallion barn, and when they walk out, uh, you very rarely see a good racehorse that's ended up being a stallion come out, and you can't see why it couldn't run. Like if you. Say when we go to the broodmare sales, we're trying to pick a mare. More often than not, if a mare comes out and she's unplaced or unraced, you can nearly tell that she was going to be like that, whether she's no action or she lacks quality or she lacks physique or she lacks hip or whatever it is that we, you know, all the things that we parlay into being a good horse. When these are unraced or unplaced, you can nearly tell why they are. And I'm sure there's anomalies and, you know, the odd one comes on to being a good one. But I think if you try and stick to um, the fundamentals when you're picking a horse... That that'll that'll take you a long way, and you know, I, I guess being uh, of a European background, we're big on on movement and athleticism, and I find a lot of people now they're they're so um, focused on the faults of a horse. You know, anyone can stand like you could get your ten year old there and tell you, oh, it's a bit offset or it's a bit back of the knee, and, and that's fine. You know, and most good horses have a fault, but you've got to be able to see through the faults to get the to get the better horse and. It was interesting, I was in Kentucky a couple of years ago and I was chatting with my old boss, Gail O'Callaghan, and he said one of the hard things in Europe now is when they're trying to sell these yearlings, a lot of um, successful people, and I understand you know, everyone's time precious and everyone's busy, but they have um, spotters or people that go ahead of them you know, doing their shortlist. And Gay said to me, he said, the trouble now is all the good horses make the shortlist because everyone's afraid to put on a bad horse. They say, oh, well, I can't put that on. And you know, people end up missing horses. And that's why I think it's so important. You've got to look as many horses as you can. Um, now, I wouldn't say I work off a database, but I have a pretty good memory of, of when I've seen a horse once, generally I'll remember what it was like, whether I liked it or whether I didn't. And that's the, that's the tough thing now, I think, for people with, um, with the pressures that, you know, trainers, for example, it's so hard for them to get around and look at all these yearlings all the time. But again, the, you know, the, the pressure that's on... Uh, one of the people that's going ahead of them. I mean, they've got to be able to put a horse on the list that they love and they mightn't quite have that experience. Mm. So, yeah, I think experience takes you a long way in this game. Well, I think most industries, right? If you've got experience, it's quite good. So you say the fundamentals. What are the sort of, let's say, five fundamentals that you would say you'd look for? Obviously, you said balance of mind before. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, I love watching them in the in the back parade ring. And I guess it comes back to, you know, if he can't handle himself in the back parade ring, how's he going to handle himself, you know, walking around in a golden slipper? Um I'm a big uh, behind-the-saddle man. I love seeing that you know, big, powerful hind quarter because at the end of the day, that's where the drive comes from. That's where the strength is coming from. Yeah, if you're buying a filly, you want to see quality. Um, and people can define that in many different ways, but it's, um, you know, I think a lot of people say it's no different to a beauty's in the eye of the beholder, I guess. But, you know, that, that you know, quality ahead. I love a nice, big, kind eye. Um, I mean, I'll never buy a horse with small ears, so I don't think there's any scientific rhyme or reason to it, but it's just something that, that's with me. And I love movement. I love action. I love a big step. I'm not saying that they got to have that goose step that people get carried away with, but um, they got to walk with purpose, and they got to stride around like they own the place. And I think you see that. It's um, from an early age, those those good horses, they, they have that. They have that movement. They have that athleticism. And 
I think you can get very, very carried away uh, critiquing foals at a very young age. But I generally find once they get to a couple of months of age, they go through various um, growth spurts and, mm. you know, ugly duckling phases. But they in- inevitably come back to where they were at that sort of six or eight weeks. And, you know, generally, if you like them, then you're going to like them later on. Yeah, right. It's quite interesting. So, yeah, when you say, say, a presence like it's you know for the untrained eye, oh, the person's not in the industry but's looking to get involved, say in a horse share or be involved with a group. When you say the president, is that when they just walk out of the box and say, "Yeah, that's me," or, or is it just the way they walk or the way they carry themselves in front of other other horses or the way they, in a sense, I suppose, the way they react to say something that shocks every other horse and, and he just sits there quietly or. I think so. Um, you know, I spent a little bit of time with um, George Smith looking at um, yearlings for a couple of days in Melbourne one year. And I remember he used to stand at the at the door of the box. interested to just see whether the horse had come up to him or whether the horse had run away. And that was one of his little things. Um, there was another time at Magic Millions we were parading a filly for Gay Waterhouse. And the horse stumbled when it walked out of the box and she just said, put it away. So, you know, yeah. yeah, but you know yourself, when you see a nice horse, it walks out of the box, it grabs you, you go, right, what's this? And as soon as it's taken that three or four steps, you're automatically, your mind is tuned in. You say, all right, I like this horse. Now, what do I not like about it? Um, And like I said, I'm not as obsessed with confirmation as a lot of people. But if they come out, they stand up, and when they, when they take four or five steps away from me, that's that's when they're they're selling themselves to me. I don't know how many times you're going to look at a good racehorse that's walking towards you, mm. but invariably, if you're standing at the winning post, they're going past you. Yeah, and that's true. what I'm looking at. That's a, that's a great way to look at it, isn't it? Um, so you go from there, so you've, you're with Coolmore, okay, yeah, and then your journey from Coolmore to where you are now. Talk yeah, us through yeah, that. Yeah, I got a, a great opportunity with uh, Lee Fleming of the, um, the famed Eliza Park days. I went down to Victoria and I spent 10 years with them. and. Yeah, we started off with three stallions there. Uh, we built it up to a stallion roster of 14. And, you know, Lee was having a big go at the time. And it was um, it was very much, I went down as the yearling manager, but myself and Brent Grayling, who now has uh, Supreme Thoroughbreds in Victoria, oh, yes. it was yeah. basically the two of us. I mean, it was um, it was, uh, it was a young team, but with a lot of mares. It was the same time when uh, EI hit. Um, Bella Spree was up and going in God's Own. Both stallions had covered huge books of mares. So we saw a lot of stock coming through the farm. Um, and it was um, it was a great way to um, really cut your teeth in the industry because you basically had to do it yourself and you yeah. never asked anyone to do something that you weren't doing yourself because half the time there wasn't someone to, to get to go and do it for you, you know? The great part of our industry, I feel, is the travel you get to do, the people you get to meet. Sort of tell us some of the people you met in the game and, and sort of where those connections have sort of led led you, I suppose, to where you are now. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting question because the beauty about our industry if you can put on a head collar and you're you're not afraid to get up and work you can go anywhere in the world now mm. um, and that's no different to what it was you know 20 or 30 years ago and I suppose uh, you know the, the Irish as a as a um, as a nation you know we, we've got a uh, a history of traveling and I think we're generally an adaptable sort of a race we we, we get on pretty well whether it's uh, whether it's going to Kentucky or whether it's coming here to Australia and as I said, I mentioned the Coolmore guys early on, and you know they opened a lot of doors for me. But you know, I spent a lot, lot of time in Victoria, and met a lot of, met a lot of really good friends down there. That um, yeah, it's been really pleasing to watch them sort of their careers progress as mine have. And you know, you spent ten years in in one place before I actually came back to work at Coolmore, and it was um, yeah, it was, I, I love going back down to the Melbourne Premier Sales and seeing all of those guys. And now, so you, you went from, you, you say you went back to Coolmore. After Coolmore, you went pretty much and headed up Aquas 
Uh, I could try to tell us about that story. Yeah, so 10 years at um, 10 years down with Eliza, and then uh, an opportunity came up. I met um, Tom, and the Magnum family have always been been great to me. And I met them in, uh, I was a bit typical, we, we met in Catalina for a bit of lunch, and they said, would you would you be keen on, on coming on board? And I said, yeah, it was a, it was a perfect stepping to- stone for me at the time. Um, and we, uh, yeah, we, we sort of came to a, an agreement, as we say, and I started with Kumo, and we spent... Pretty much nine years there. Um, that was it. Was an exciting time. Obviously, so you think was uh, was there. To, it was retired. It was Piero. You see all the good European horses coming through, and I suppose you you met a different um, caliber of breeder as well, and you start to get a little bit of an understanding of those those niche breeders, what they were trying to achieve with with their portfolio of mares and. Um, I suppose the way the sales were going, you know, I remember when we left um, Eliza, like. Melbourne Premier and Adelaide were both averaging about 40,000. You'd remember from, you know, Adelaide was uh, wh- where that sale was. And look where they are now. And it's such a short, uh, short window. And that's one thing that y- you do, um, you do definitely look back and how quick time goes, you know. Yeah. Okay. So then you did that with Coolmore. You got to work with the greats again. And then you took the big leap with Aquas. Yeah, that was, uh, that w- uh, to be honest, that was a big leap. But I sort of kept an eye on what Aquas were doing. And um, there was an opportunity to, to join them. And, you know, we had a good sit down. And, um, you know, the Fung family were pretty keen to, to really expand. They were they'd started out at the farm in Queensland. And Holy Roman Emperor was standing there. And they were keen to really get stuck into the... Um, I'd seen an opportunity in that sort of colt market, you know, sort of buying those high-end colts um, with an opportunity to race them for ourselves primarily, uh, try and win nice races, and um, I suppose not different, not dissimilar to what Newgate and the guys are doing, or James and and, and everyone else. So it, it was great for the Australian market actually, because you went from basically there was no real um, colt syndicate players. 10 years ago 15 years ago and suddenly I remember like at Magic Millions we'd be bidding on a horse you'd look around it was either James or Henry or whatever we were all bidding on the same horses and I suppose there's there's plenty of luck involved but you know if you take enough shots you're going to get lucky and you know the likes of Farnan for example he went through the ring and it's not like he was uh, he was stolen for 20 grand you know he made, he made, he made proper money um, but he could quite easily have ended up in anyone else's syndicate as well so um, yeah, that that um, that relationship that I had with, with with the Fung family and the team there, like they, they give you great um, confidence to go in and buy the horse you want. And you know, I think um, you know, I spent uh, nearly five years there, and I think um, I learned a lot, of, um, particularly on the on the business side of things, and and how all that worked, and sort of reporting into a Hong Kong mechanism. Um, but the other side of, it, I think they, you know, they got plenty plenty back as well. You know, but. Um, from from the experience I brought in, and um, obviously have you know basically brought up um, looking at horses, and it's um, I don't know how you'd quantify, but it's 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 definitely uh, it's bred into you, I suppose, more than a a, a trained thing. Um, I think you can teach a lot of people a lot of things, um, but it's the little nuances that um, that work for me or work for you know any of the great judges that are out there, and. Um, yeah, I suppose it was the 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 Fung um, family situation was um, yeah, it was a brilliant part of my life, and it's something I'll you know I look back on fondly, and yeah, I'll always watch their colours go around and give them a cheer. But this that that uh, door closed by um, yeah, it was a mutual thing. They were they were going in one direction. I was sort of we'd moved our family up to we're living now in Ballina, which is just below Byron, and 
my wife Julie was setting up a practice there and it just seemed to fit that we moved and then you know the opportunity came with um, with uh, Harbour Racing in Hong Kong and you know joined them first of January and that was a whole new learning experience as well because we've got a you know we're listing on the stock exchange in Hong Kong so having to learn the nuances of being a director and all the protocols within that so it was it was a bit of back to school for a guy that, that left school probably a bit earlier than he should have. Well, it's quite a journey if you think about it like I mean you must pinch yourself a lot right just what, what you've been able to achieve in the game uh, what is going to be achieved I suppose and what you're doing now I mean those are things that I suppose any any young guy listening now is going to sit there and go, well, this is achievable. This is a guy from Ireland that you know started picking up horse poo and, and now he's the head of or a director of Harbour Racing. It looks like one of the big players in the Australian racing scene. Oh, absolutely. And look, I never really set myself any sort of life targets or life goals as such. Um, I was always um, ambitious and I've always been involved in the sort of buying and selling and trading side of things as well. Um, and, and from a personal point of view, but it's so. Um, it's so amazing our industry that it just it just once once you're um, involved in it like you're absorbed and it's it's 24 7 you're watching everything that's happening and the beautiful part about australian race it's so uh, well embraced by the the media that it is genuine it's it's front page news, but it's also back page news so pretty much your life goes from carnival to carnival on the, on the racing scene and then suddenly you're into the sales circuit you know you're meeting all the same faces you recognize all the horses that people have you see the young stallions coming through and you know fortunately over the last 10 years we're starting to have a bit more of a, a affinity with some of those and i'm looking forward to seeing some of the stallions that have young progeny on the ground and see see how they progress. Some of the ones you you spoke about before, say Farnan, Prague, Anders, that must give you great pride that uh, you know you're going to be potentially buying some of their, their yearlings coming up. I mean that must be pretty exciting for you. Yeah, it was. I remember because when we watched um, watched Farnan win the Golden Slipper, obviously it was with COVID, nobody was there, but it, it was with a close group of friends back, back in school, and it was. Um, it was quite a surreal moment to know that you were you were you're part of something that um, I mean you can you can blow it out of proportion a small bit but that, that's that's always going to be there it's always going to be on your CV you know always on your record and you know he's got his first foals on the ground he's you know we'll we'll start seeing yearlings coming through and hopefully he produces a champion two year old for the for the connections and you know I can look back in in time and say well listen I was I was involved with him and yeah you know, there's there's plenty more um, bullets to fire hopefully I'm only 44 even though with the uh, with the new moustache, I might look a bit older. <laughs> and the, uh, the the shady the shady colour there, mate. What really stood out about Farnan? Because this is a champion, this horse, right? Champion two year old. Champion two. Look, yep. we we were unabashed fans of the sire, obviously, with, yep. with not a single doubt. But he was um, he was a bit different to one of them because he, he didn't look overly precocious. But he was he was a very good mover, not a typical colour for a for a not a single doubt. But every time we look back at him, every time he came out of the box, he just paraded yeah. like a champion. We said, look at this fella go, and we yeah. thought he was going to make a lot more money. And it's quite funny, as as you know, when you're buying yearlings. I don't know, you you see a lot of people high five themselves after they've bought it well yeah. I reckon you high five after he's won a race but <laughs> but it's 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 uh, it's so tough because when you buy them under what you expect to pay for them you look around and go Geez, what what's did I miss here what, yeah. what's wrong with it and, and you know what with the uh, the reality racing most of the time maybe you would have been better off leaving but he was he was one of the ones that we were happy to get Anders was a much different horse like he was he was done he was ready to have a saddle put on him he was just a beast and it was just who else is going to be bidding against us? And we were fortunate with um, um, Kieran and Annabelle was with Kieran at the time, and they loved the horse as well. And we, you know, we were buying horses together. So we said, listen, I think he, I'd say in hindsight, Anders was probably the number one pick out of the sale um, on a, on a physical. If you were trying to buy a real precocious two-year-old, 
Um, Prague was a bit different. He was a bit scopier. You know, his son of Redoutes didn't look like he was going to be overly early. And he was the most expensive one of them. And, you know, maybe uh, if he'd had a little bit more luck during, during his racing career, he might have ended up uh, retiring with the best CV. But they're, they're all high-class horses. The one, um, you know, uh, key denominator you have between them, they're all by proven sires, yes. which, which, which we generally, we did steer towards at the... So when you buy it, trying to get a, a stain, you, you're buying and buy proven sires. That's, that's the big thing I for I think you. That, that's for us, yeah. And, um, you know, as you look through sort of the... Uh, the course of history unfortunately most stallions aren't as good as we'd like them to be um and you can fall into that trap of paying you know a lot of money for the horse that's going to be a really good horse as opposed to the the, the horse that is and here yeah, look at a horse like Schwazier, for example yes he was always a horse that undersold for what how he performed and every year you'd see the new gun on the block outselling his Schwazier, even the, the schnitzels and the danziers all those proven stallions they never sold as well as the the upcoming horse yeah but uh, inevitably the upcoming horse wasn't as good as yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah so. it makes total sense doesn't it? Yeah. when you say the for the not a single for fun and it had it had the uh the right color the wrong color talk us through that as a yearling, why you look for, say, a certain colour in a horse? Um, what, what does that mean, so for the listeners that don't know? Um, I, like, the really good stallions are generally um, referred to as colour dominant. So you can nearly always pick the colour that they are. You know, the, the, the Dane Hills Rose Bay, Redoutes were the same sort of thing. Um, we wouldn't... Um, primarily um, knock a horse off a list because of his colour or anything like that but I like you like to see what's the saying you know, black cats have black kittens yeah, like, yeah, is yeah, there, yeah. where's the line of horses and generally if you walk into a field with 20 weanlings or yearlings if you know the stallion that you're talking about you nearly always pick the the size or the strength or the scope of, of each horse and um, I guess that's what it was and I think not a single doubt as such he, he generally got a you know pretty short couple of sharp, sharp looking you know real early two year old type whereas Farnan had just had that bit, bit more length about him a bit more scope and not as um, not as probably heavy muscle wise as, as a lot of the ones that, that we'd seen so that was the only little thing was um is he as strong as what we'd attributed the, the the better looking not a single doubts and thankfully he was and you know we had some great partners um he was actually bred by um phoenix thoroughbreds and so um it was quite funny after we bought him um we, we were buying yearlings with phoenix at the time and for whatever reason whatever his brand was the fact that he was in viner we hadn't put two and two together and realized he was a phoenix horse oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um a friend of mine brian mcguire was working for kieran at the time and uh, Brian was up at the Magic Million sales ring and he rang me and he said, listen, Kieran's happy to do um, half of that horse with you guys if you want. And Justin Fung had arrived out from America and he was sitting on the table with the Phoenix guys. And they were asking, what did you bought? And Justin said, oh, well, we bought this lad, not a single doubt. And then someone on the table, oh, we bred him. <laughs> and that's how, that's how it came back a full circle. So we might not have had to pay half as much if we'd known that at the time. But I tell you, it was a good lesson for me in um, you've, how much information you... you you got to be armed with everything yes. heading into a sale. Yeah. Um, and that's just, um, I suppose, uh, it was a learning curve for me. But in, in any walk of life or any walk of business, um, you know... Um, to the background. What is it? Forearmed is forewarned and, mm-hmm. and all that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. And, and everything's there for you now. So it, was, uh, it, it worked out lucky for us and he's, uh, he's been a good horse. Mate, as a young kid, he's coming into the industry. Uh, what's your three bits of advice you give him? Young girl, young boy? Um, uh, What's, what's the three bits of advice? 
But yeah, you know, I was um, sort of my eldest boy Darcy started. He's been working with Annabelle there recently over the Flemington Carnival, and um, I, I just noticed like he was leaving home at half two every morning to get into Flemington at quarter past three. Now he does it because he's passionate and he loves it. And that's fine. So you have to be passionate. You have to love it. But how does he turn around to his friends and say, hey, guys, do you want to come and work in the racing stables? I'll pick you up at 20 past two every morning. So, so it's not really going to happen. But I, I think you've got to have, a, you got to have an open mind. Um, don't get stuck in one spot for too long. Because when you're 17, 18, 19, you think every single position you have is, is forever. There's so much opportunity. Um, we've got basically the three main jurisdictions Europe, America and Australia I'd say travel as much as you can be respectful where you can listen and learn but the, the main thing is try and do as much grounding as you can because wherever you go you're going to learn something and I suppose I was fortunate when I come out here it's probably not as easy now I'd say as it was um, 25 years ago it's almost like it's your grandparents, your parents' words ringing in your ears. Stay at school. Make sure you yeah get try and get as much um, background qualification as you can because our industry, it's it's becoming, it's obviously always been a business, but it's be, becoming more and more business business orientated. So you, you got to have the fundamentals, and you know two and two is always four. But sometimes you got to be able to put it on the spreadsheet instead of being able to just calculate it in your head and. And that's uh, and that's what the the, the business that's where the game's is. heading. That's, that's the game's heading. I think yeah. it is. And you know, I look at little things like uh, like the regulations within our industry. I, I did um, just in the last sort of twelve months of sort of working through a real estate license because I think that the fundamentals are the same in anything, but the regulations are eventually going to come in. So you don't want to be behind the behind yeah. the blocks. I'd rather be be ahead of the curve and say, right, well, this is how we're now regulated. This is what's required, and that ties into what I'm doing in in Hong Kong as well. So you're, it's everything's an open book these days. Yeah, now I was lucky enough to have Robbie Dolan on the show, and uh, he had a hidden talent that was um, that obviously was his singing. Now tell us a funny story, something that's hidden that no one would know about the great Shane McGrath before we are before we sign off. Um, well, I definitely can't sing. Um, I tell you, actually, I don't know if many of your listeners will remember. There was a great jockey in Ireland called Richard Hughes. Yeah, Richard Hughes. And there was a great uh, jumps jockey called Adrian Maguire. He rode a couple of Gold Cup winners. I rode in a race against the two of them when I was younger. Yeah, wow. So you, not only were you uh, a great, uh, great groomsman, you're also a jockey. Now, they were both sort of 14 or 15 at the time. We were pony racing in a place called Dingle, which is down in, yeah. down in Kerry. Uh, I remember it was 13 2 is the Dingle Pony Derby, it was called. <laughs> £1,000 prize money to the winner. Oh, wow. You had to weigh in, it was six and a half stone. And so, Hughesy Maguire, they were the kings at the time. Richard Hughes had a great pony, big white face to him called a Tay Flair. <laughs> he won. Adrian Maguire ran second. We were a long way last, but it was, uh, yeah, that was part of the pony racing story. Great experience, eh? Yeah. Shane McGrath, thanks so much for your time. It's great to have you on the show. And I reckon our listeners would have learned a hell of a lot today about what to look for, uh, that, uh, that everything is achievable in the game. And uh, don't, uh, don't ever shoot yourself short. Go for it. Thanks for having me on, Wade. Really appreciate it, mate. Thanks, Shane. That's it for At The Track with Osher this week. If you like the show, hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen. We'll be back soon with more great guests, so I'll see you then. 
The new Elite Bet app has arrived. It's got all the betting features you expect and new ones you're going to love. Elite Bet is your one stop shop on race day with Hot Bet, where you can back the tips of proven winning punters. Build fast sports multis and play same game multis. The Elite Bet app is the smoothest betting experience around. Trusted for 10 years, Elite Bet is 100% Australian owned. The only betting app you need this summer is Elite Bet. Gamble responsibly. Are you thinking about making a podcast? If so, contact the Afternoon Sport Group. We'll make it easy. With the technical know-how and industry knowledge, we'll get your podcast up and running in no time. Get in touch via our website or email hello at afternoonsport.com.